Coming up in this podcast, ECNM collapse, Midland brick sale, BGC results, Metronet developments, CEO changes, Waterbank, and our special report on small business covers the struggling hospitality sector and the rise of co-working spaces. And don't forget our great for the state feature, and we're going to talk about Michael Cheney and companies with values and purpose. Welcome to Mark My Words, the weekly podcast from Business News, with Mark Pownall and Mark Beyer discussing the important business news and data stories from Western Australia. Welcome to our weekly podcast and welcome Mark Beyer. Mark, the biggest story for us for the week was uh, the contractor ECNM going into administration. Look, we broke this news on Thursday morning. Uh, look, a business that's been running for 33 years, uh, headed up by Chief Executive Simon Higgins. Uh, they'd been a really good, solid business, uh, had about 400 people, and those people have been stood down after the business went into administration. Uh, they've got in a couple of partners from KPMG. This is one of those really interesting cases where I think one of their really big contracts is what appears to have brought the business undone. Yep. Uh, they won a big contract on the Tianchi lithium refinery that's been built down at Kwanana. Now, we've previously reported that that project has some uh, cost and timing issues. Um, you know, building a lithium refinery is a new thing in Australia, yeah. uh, highly complex, um, and in a sense, perhaps not surprising that it encountered some issues. Um, and it appears that ECNM um, has been adversely affected by that. Uh, but look, you know, they've got a track record. They've worked on the uh, Wheatstone LNG project. They've worked on the Roy Hill iron ore mine. Um, so, you know, they've done a lot in the past, um, owing about $10 million to secured creditors. Yep. Um, so we're talking about the banks there or, you know, like funders? Primarily, yes. Yeah. Um, we don't know the details. Um, but the directors had been attempting to do some restructuring. Uh, they saw the issues. Um, but just were not able to get get a deal done, and so were forced to call in the administrators. So hopefully, they can restructure the business and extract some value from it, and possibly keep on trading. But yep. it remains to be seen. Mm. So, okay, and uh, yeah, I mean it's it's big news, isn't it, Mark? And I guess that the the bit that I know that it's 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 uh, you know in some ways. They're one of the firms connected to one of the growth parts of the state, you know, the lithium sector. So it's pretty tragic to hear that. Um, and I guess even more so that just, I, I kind of thought we were out of the woods and you weren't going to see too much of this happening anymore or any of it as we sort of hit the bottom. But it still surprises me that, that something like this can still happen when once you've uh, reached the bottom of a market, uh, a market like we thought we had some time ago. Um, now, uh, more big news late this week uh, is the historic local company Midland Brick, now back in local hands. That's right. Uh, so the, the traditionally the biggest brick manufacturer in Western Australia, uh, set up by Rick New mm. back in just after World War II, um, got sold to Borrell, big national group, um, after Rick New passed away. Uh, they've been operating the asset for a long time now. Um, but there's, we've been hearing whispers for, I mean, on and off for two or three years that this asset was coming back onto the market. So a really interesting consortium that's come together to buy it, uh, Link Property. So they're a land developer headed up by Ben Lyle, and they've done quite a few industrial estates. Um, Finney Group, of course, headed up by Adrian Finney. 
Um, and Birchmead, that's part of the Karachi family's CFC group. So they've got Centurion Transport and several other businesses. Yep. And Birchmead is their property arm. Gotcha. So those three have come together. Um, and they've got a bit of history. In fact, Link Property and Finney Group have worked together on other industrial estates in the past. So the big opportunity they see, uh, they're going to keep the business going, yeah. first and foremost, um, albeit following some very big restructuring over the last two or three years. Um, as the volume of housing starts has come off, uh, plus BGC came into the market. Well, I was going to say, I mean, the market's changed, hasn't it, so much? When, so there was always BGC two, then, in, there, yeah. then there were three. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just as the market came off the peaks. Yeah. Um, so the business will continue. The key management is, in fact, staying. Uh, but the big upside for these people, there's 800 hectares of land. Um, around Midland, Middle Swan, and then further out at Mouche and Bullsbrook. So they see oh, right, okay. big opportunities, both industrial development, but also residential, um, because part of it, in fact, fronts the Swan River up around Midland. So they're saying, look, there could be some quality residential developed on these sites. Um, so you know, they're going to consolidate the, the manufacturing business into a, a smaller footprint and, uh, and have a nice... Uh, parcel or several big parcels of land that presumably will come to the market over uh, over coming years. And some very handy brick supply to build with. Absolutely, <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Oh, there you go. And now Mark's staying in the building sector. Um, and speaking of BGC, the, the WA giant, uh, construction giant, disclosed some big losses. Yeah. Now, BGC historically has never disclosed their financial results. Um, unlike some other unlisted businesses like um, you know, Gina Reinhardt's companies release their financials to ASIC every year. Mm. Um, because of grandfathering rules, BGC never did that. So we never really knew exactly how big or how profitable it was. Um, now that BGC, of course, is going through a big change, um, the, fam- the Buckeridge family has handed over to a new board uh, led by Neil Hamilton, uh, they've got a new uh, chief executive they recently brought in, Daniel Cooper, yep. to run the business. Um, and they've lodged um, two sets of financials. What's interesting is that they show some big losses, primarily from write-downs in some of their investment properties. Um, now, they haven't given the details, but we assume these would include the Western Hotel and the Aloft Perth Hotel, which were both developed by BGC. Mm-hmm. They've subsequently been sold, um, but they had big write-downs of over about $200 million all up. Gotcha. So in the year to June 2018, the group lost $139 million. So very substantial. So the write-downs were a large part of that yes. loss, obviously. So on a trading performance, they were you know, roughly break-even. Yeah. But then you got the write-downs on top of it. I think what's equally interesting, if you go back to 2016, um, if you like a more normal period, annual profit, $57 million. Mm. And I think we can safely assume that there were many years prior to that when the business would have been pulling in that sort of profit year in, year out. Yeah, yeah, and um, more, no doubt. Yeah. Um, you know, annual turnover, about $2 billion. So it just highlights, you know, what a a very large business that uh, the late Len Buckeridge built up, um, house building, uh, manufacturing, all the building materials that they used, uh, construction, mining, contracting, 
Mm. So, uh, so, so this isn't. You don't think this is new management? You know, clearing the decks, doing some write downs. This is just. This is just normal course of business. That's right. Yeah, um, and this is, if you like, what the new management has inherited. Yeah. Um, so interesting too when you look at the balance sheet. You know, I mean, it's still a good solid balance sheet, but equity has come down substantially in the past two to three years. Mm-hmm. Uh, debt went up very substantially. Okay. Um, so you know, the new board and the new management, they've inherited a business that's not as strong as it had been in the past. Yeah, right. Um, and as we've talked about, you know, housing construction is soft. Very soft. Margins are very competitive in brick making. Yeah. So. <laughs> no, totally. Oh, well, there we go. Uh, and uh, interested to hear more. I know we've got Daniel Cooper speaking uh, in one of our events, uh, you know, in a couple of months. So uh, look forward to uh, to exploring what he plans to do and, and uh, you know, what his background is that'll, that'll give him the opportunity to, to, to uh, you know, send BGC in a, in, in a different direction. Um, now, Mark, the big infrastructure story in WA is Metronet. Um, and I guess coming back to Midland in a way, is, is this the revival of train manufacturing there? That's what the state government is hoping. So the you know, this was uh, Sunday last week, um, or last weekend, um, when the state government announced that Alstom, big French uh, group, was the preferred proponent to build the new rail cars, um, about 250 rail cars. And the crucial part of this is that as part of the deal, they have to build them in WA. Yeah. Uh, they've earmarked a site at Bellevue, so just the other side of Midland, which historically, that was the big Midland Railway workshops. You know, it used to be one of the big employers in Western Australia. Everyone tells you about all the apprentices that came through. Um, and its closure, I guess, was symptomatic of the, the downturn in manufacturing um, in Western Australia. So the McGowan government is hoping to revive that. We pose the question of, you know, is it commercially viable to build rail cars in Western Australia compared to bringing them in from the East Coast or mm. elsewhere? Mm. The government assures us that it will be, but they've yet to release any numbers to substantiate that. Uh, their view is that the volume of rail cars that will be manufactured here means that it does become commercially viable to do it and competitive with other locations. Um, And they've assured us that when the contract is finalised, they'll be releasing comparative costings. Um, So I'm very keen to see those numbers when they come out. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I I suppose, I'm presuming that I mean, you need a whole bunch of rail. You build a railway line. You need a whole bunch of rail cars in one go to go on there, don't you? So, or do these then? These then they they also replace existing stock on the rest of the lines over time? Do they? There would be a rolling program. Yeah. So there'd be manufacture of new cars plus maintenance over thirty years. I get it. So get the it. maintenance already happens here. Yes. There's a couple of big workshops up in near Abup and another location. So that that in itself generates quite a lot of work. Yeah. Um, but they're layering on top of that um, the manufacturing of the new the, the new rail cars. Yeah, got it. Um, and sticking with Metronet, uh, two consortia were shortlisted to upgrade Bayswater Station as part of that. Yeah, so look, a nice opportunity here. Um, so Giorgio Group has partnered with Lendlease. They're one of the uh, shortlisted proponents. And then Deckmill has partnered with Coleman Rail. So a nice theme there about local contractors 
partnering with bigger sort of national or international groups yeah. uh, to win work out of this. So, yeah, lots of opportunities off the back of Metronet. Um, one of the challenges here, good luck to them, um, major upgrade of Bayswater train station and the uh, the infamous underpass there where the trucks regularly get stuck yeah. and trying to drive <laughs> underneath the railway line. They're going to get rid of that finally um, and hopefully do all that work without disrupting people too much. Yeah, right. So, you know, a nice little example of, um, of contracting opportunities off the back of government infrastructure work. Gotcha. Um, great, Mark. Well, thank you. Um, now, I'm, I'm going to change I'm going to change the order of things here because uh, I'm just thinking we're, we're talking about the water bank project. And I think Lend-Lease was also involved with that. So I feel that's a legitimate segue to the water bank project. Yep. Uh, now... I guess listeners might know that that as there's a large, it's at the eastern edge of the city, right next to the causeway. Um, and uh, Dan Wilkie, who's written that story, says 83 million has been spent by the state on what remains a sand pit. Yeah, look, anybody that goes out over the causeway will have driven past this site and will be wondering, after all these years, what is going on there. Mm. Uh, now, the, the spark for Dan's latest round of inquiries was that the Metropolitan Redevelopment Authority, which is the government agency overseeing the project, um, hired the um, sort of engineering group AROP um, earlier this year to investigate um, the site, um, to do a... Um, uh, to survey the site. It's to a geotechnical kind of that's right, survey, yes, right? Yeah. To determine if building can begin. Now, they've announced at least twice in the past that the site is ready to go. Uh, Lendlease, as the developer, have come out several times and said, here's our plans, here are the buildings we're going to put up there, mm. um, apartments, office buildings and so on. I think they were so marketing on. it at one stage, for they, sure. They had, they had yeah. a, well, there's the, the sales office is still sitting there by the, by the banks of the river, yeah. um, but it hasn't been open for a long time as far as I can see. Uh, so um, look, no doubt, a very challenging site um, right by the river, you know, on reclaimed land. Um, and yet Elizabeth Key was very similar, you know, a reclaimed site on, uh, you know, by the banks of the river. Yeah. Um, a lot of work had to happen at Elizabeth Key so that high-rise buildings could go up there to, so the foundations were, were strong enough. Um, similar issues would have been encountered here, no doubt. Mm. Um, look, from where we sit, it's frustrating when we ask the question, what's going on? Because clearly something is going on there um, and government's reluctant to talk about these things. Um, but look, Dan's dug deep and uh, you know, adding up those numbers, $83 million either spent or budgeted to spend on the site and nothing is coming out of the ground. No. And no immediate prospect of that happening. I should just spray some lawn on it for now, I think, and uh, <laughs> some seeds and get some lawn going. Um, yeah. Now, uh, flipping back to uh, what we were going to talk about, which is a bit different, uh, Mark, you've done a lot of work around a lot of the CEO changes that have been announced or, or that have either occurred lately or have been announced to occur soon. So let's go through the who's who is who there and also what the trend is. Yeah. So, look, I, I guess the most... Uh, newsworthy one over the past week was Steve Rosich. Um, he uh, reached mutual agreement with the Dockers uh, <laughs> that he would leave. Um, 
Steve Rossich evidently had been a supporter of Ross Lyon. Uh, so when Dale Orcock and the rest of the board decided that it was time for Ross Lyon to go, Steve Rossich also decided he would go. Um, an example of the uh, different circumstances in which chief executives' uh, tenure comes to an end. Yeah. Another notable one recently was Tim Warner. Uh, ran Seven West Media. Yeah, not Kerry, really a local, although he was a Perth boy originally. Perth wasn't boy he? original, that's right. Uh, Kerry Stokes decided time for a change, so Tim Warner was out the door after several years. Um, but look, the other thing that happened, we've had a few very long-running chief executives who've announced their retirement. Uh, Jeff Weber from MMA Offshore after uh, seventeen years. Uh, Bernie Ridgeway at Imdex after 20 years. Uh, Peter Harold, one of our 40 under 40 winners yeah. earlier in his career. Uh, he'll be retiring next year after um, about 18 or 19 years at Panoramic Resources. Yeah. Um, and in fact, you went to drinks recently for Chris Sutherland. Yep, uh, who has finished, is finishing up next month after 11 years. Now I was gonna say 11 years of programmed, but he also was running Integrated before that for two years and programmed, basically there was a merger there and he ended up running the company. So mm. arguably it's been 13 years. Mm. So, you know, it's a it's a, a loss of a huge amount of executive experience yeah. um, in a short space of time. Um, and then a few others in, in the last one or two years, you know, Rod Jones from Navitas, uh, Ron Sayers at Ausdrill, he was there for 30 years. Yeah. Um, now, What's striking is just how rare this is. So I've gone through our BNIQ database and looked at the tenure of chief executives at larger WA-listed companies and seen how many have lasted more than 10 years. There aren't many. Um, one of the standouts is Rob Valletri at Monodelphus. Um, he's been on the board there for about 25 years. He's been chief executive for uh, about 15. Um, Chris Ellison at Mineral Resources, uh, Bill Beeman at Northern Star, mm-hmm. albeit now executive chairman, but still you know, running the show. Uh, Brendan Gore at Pete, uh, Darren Pateman at Finbar. But I mean, after that, you know, that's about the list yeah, right. of people that have lasted that period of time. Um, there's a whole bunch of international surveys that say that the average tenure of a chief executive is five years or thereabouts. So very rare for people to last all that period of time. So then you ask the question, well, how do they manage it? Well, one, you know, deliver good returns to your shareholders consistently over time. Um, the other thing that stood out is the, the partnership, if you like. Um, so at Monodelphus, the whole time that Rob Valletri's been there, John Rubino has been his boss. Yeah. He's the chairman. Yep. Uh, similar story with uh, Pete, Brendan Gore's the CEO. Yep. Tony Lennon's Tony the chairman. Been there for a long time, yeah. Uh, Finbar's similar, Darren Pateman and John Chan. Um, you know, Chris Ellison, um, he had Christopher Rowe as his chairman the whole time that uh, he'd been chief executive there. Um, so, you know, I guess it shows how admirable it is when people can in fact last that period of time yeah it tells you that they're doing something something good for those businesses too right and uh, yeah and and you know and I think if you look in there too the uh, they typically people th- those people you name typically have skin in the game too like you know either the either the managing director or the chairman 
have a large stake in most of those companies I'm thinking of, you think you named. Yep. I think you'll find that. So it's not like they're swanning along looking after themselves. Uh, you know, they are actually, you know, they're trying to, you know, build equity. And I, I find that quite interesting, Mark. And, and briefly, there are a few smaller companies where, in fact, they're listed on the ASX, but still retain some of the character of a family business. Yes. And a prime example would be Schaefer Corporation. Uh, both John Schaefer and his sister Danielle Blaine are on the board. Uh, John Schaefer has run that company uh, since um, 1988. So, uh, <laughs> a long innings there. Yes. <laughs> Very good. Uh, thanks for that. I think just as we leave, I think we did some work around uh, not-for-profits and charitable organisations and the like. Um, a year or two ago that showed you know the same kinds of trends so we'll have to go back and dig those ones up right uh, now mark our special report uh, is on small business and I think Matt McKenzie's done this tough times in hospitality and also the growth in co-working spaces so what, what have we got there yeah so look, Matt's done a bit of a survey about look back at a lot of the closures that have happened in the hospitality sector and sort of look for some of the themes that apply there um, you know, obviously, lots of businesses have shut down. It's not all one-way traffic. You know, no. there, there are a lot new, a lot of new ones opening up. Um, but look, you know, a soft economy, so people are tightening their purse strings more. Um, a perennial theme that comes up is disputes with landlords or differences of opinion with landlords mm. um, who, who are not willing to uh, adjust their rents. Um, they're two of the big issues that have come up. Um, and then, you know, wage costs um, that, uh, you know, are very sticky. Um, so yeah. economic conditions go up and down, but wages tend not to go down. So, right, so your biggest costs, your labour and your rent, can't move yep. them, can't shift them. That's right. Um, so a good analysis there from Matt. Um, and then the other part of it, uh, we've updated our list of co-working spaces around Perth. Um, now, this was something that Space Cubed um, didn't pioneer but they sort of made it a big thing in Perth. Mm. Uh, that organisation now has about four different co-working spaces around town. Now, initially it was all about startups, you know, new techie companies going in there, but it's now becoming a more mainstream thing. So um, Space Cube themselves are appealing to a much broader market because they want to they build a lasting business. Yep. Um, but there's new people coming into the market all the time uh, Dan Wilkie's had a talk to a group called Spaces. They're a big international outfit. Um, they've just opened up in Perth. And then another, I think the big one globally, is called WeWork. And they're opening up a couple of spaces in Perth later this year. Um, and you're also seeing people that traditionally ran what we used to call a serviced office. They are now, I guess, reinventing themselves and offering a co-working space. <laughs> gotcha. Um, Which is the same thing, isn't it? Essentially, <laughs> yes. Um, so look, you know, lots of data there on our list of co-working spaces and lots of good analysis of what's going on there. Great. Uh, now, Mark, um, our, the other feature in the magazine coming out next week is our Great for the State feature on values and purpose, as we mentioned in the lead-in. There's an interview there with Michael Cheney. Yeah. What, what did Dan Wilkie get there? Yeah. So look, that's our, um, you know, a nice little lift out in the middle of the normal magazine. Uh, but Dan uh, Wilkie, again, 
um, had a good chat to Mike Cheney. And it's really interesting to get some historical perspective here. It goes back to the 80s uh, when it was sort of those uh, Alan Bonds, Laurie Connells of the world, and it was all about making money. And the idea of a business and an entrepreneur having caring about sort of having a broader sort of sense of their role in society and ideas like corporate social responsibility just didn't rate at all. Mm. Now it's fairly mainstream, broadly accepted. And one company that played a big part in that was West Farmers um, back in the 80s when it was highly unfashionable. Um, And and, their fundamental view is um, their, their principal goal is to deliver good returns for shareholders over time. But you can only do that if you're um, a well-accepted member of the community and, if you like, have that license to operate. Yep. So you look after your customers, you look after your staff, you look after the environment, you have a good relationship with government. Um, and that extends through into sort of support in a philanthropic, charitable way as well. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, some great sort of reflections there from Mike Cheney about the way in which people um, thought it was a bit weird, a bit strange, what they were doing back in the <laughs> 80s. Isn't that remarkable? The world has moved on. Well, it sure did. And, uh, you know, I, I, I certainly, as a, as a business writer in this town in the 90s, uh, you know, West Farmers was head and shoulders after, after WA Inc. I mean, it was, it's almost like, you know, a kind of battle zone or a city that's been, you know, bombed to oblivion and then and there, there emerges one you know one survivor kind of thing and uh, and and I guess in some ways you know West Farmers went on after the 90s to become basically the the, the, the poster boy for good business um, around around Australia uh, both successful um, in in profitability and and successful in uh, in the way it was managed um, and Michael Cheney was a big part of that, obviously with Trevor Eastwood there as his chairman. So, you mm. know, and, and, and one thing I picked up from that article, which I, I'm looking back to the 90s about that, but they're talking about it in today's terms as a West Farmers way. So it, it continues, which I'm pleased to hear. Mm. And look, you know, it's, this is just not just sort of assertions by the company about, you know, we're doing these nice things. There's a group called Strive, <coughs> excuse me, Strive Philanthropy. Uh, they do an annual survey of ASX-listed companies and look at their contributions to charities and other philanthropic causes and ranks them all. West Farmers consistently is number one on that ranking. Yeah, there you go. Uh, last year, 2.5% of their pre-tax profit um, was donated in that way, mm. um, substantially more than any other ASX-listed company. Yeah, right. So you know, hard numbers there to back up uh, the talk. Um, mm. So no, it's a good story. No, fair enough. And something, obviously, that their shareholders, presumably, are happy with. So it all works out. Thanks, Mark. Uh, Eddie Hagel was appointed to the role of Nickel West Asset President in March 2015 with a mandate to execute a business turnaround of the asset. Nickel West's subsequent transformation led to the creation of a lean, high-performance and innovative culture focused on value creation. Join us for breakfast on September 27 to hear how BHP Nickel West Asset President led the Nickel West through those challenges and discusses the future of its mining operations. Thanks for listening to Mark My Words with Mark Powell and Mark Beyer from Business News. 
For more information, please go to businessnews.com.au forward slash podcasts. And to receive these regularly, search for Business News WA in iTunes or SoundCloud.